I want to uh, I want to introduce Chuck. Chuck, you can come on up. Chuck Matter is the missions pastor at Christ United, and um, anyway, he's here today. But I want y'all to know something about Chuck. We're, first of all, we're in, we're very very glad that you're here. Thank you for coming. You talk about a commitment. Let me tell you what our sacrifice. Let me tell you what this brother did. Guess what he's doing today when we when he leaves here. He's going to pick up his third child that was born on on Friday. And leave the hospital and go to his house. So, man, let's give this guy an applause. Amen. Amen. Y'all just welcome Chug. It's great, but man, thank you for coming, brother. I really do appreciate it. Look forward to oh, hearing what God has to say through you. Certainly glad to be here. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I was going to share that because I, I didn't want you to see the the wristband and think I was contagious or had broken out of the insane asylum. Um, so uh, our little boy, he's doing well. Um, but I'm not exactly sure what will come out of my mouth this morning since uh, we were scheduled to induce on Tuesday. And we don't need to now. So uh, thank you for having me. When uh, John Hugh told me uh, he was going to be out of town and invited me to come speak, and he had shared about it was this series on being for the city. He said, just, you know, Chuck, just tell your story and kind of what you're doing. And he shared he was going to look at different cities biblically and kind of basics. Um, I just, this passage and this city was just laid on my heart and I hadn't been able to shake it. So uh, it may be more for me than anybody else, but this is what we're going to look at this morning. And you'll hear a little bit of my story probably. Uh, We'll see what happens. But if you have your Bibles, or I notice it's printed in your order of worship, I want to turn with me to 2 Kings uh, chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 19 through 22. And the city that was just pressed on on my heart to think about um, is Jericho. And it's a passage that talks about Jericho. 2 Kings, maybe that's not the the book we turn to the quickest. Um, It's in the Old Testament. Comes right after 1 Kings. So, uh, 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. And uh, I'm going to read from this. It's a little different translation than my Bible. So, um, the people of the city, and the city that it's being talked about there is Jericho. The people of the city of Jericho said to Elisha, Look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see, or it looks good as you can see, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, this is what the Lord says, I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained pure to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. Let's pray. Dear God, we just praise you and thank you for the gift of worship, the opportunity to gather in your presence. And we thank you for your word. And I just pray that your spirit that guide and lead us and teach us this morning. That every word is spoken be for your glory and it be your message, not mine. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, this passage of this strange event happening in Jericho, this bad water and Elisha the prophet, he just became a prophet. Uh, Elijah's gone. He says, bring me this new bowl and some salt. Throws it in there. It's kind of a weird story. And if you think about the city of Jericho, this is probably not the first passage that comes to mind. You may think of the book of Bible that kind of first mentions Jericho, if anybody knows. Joshua. Joshua. And what happens in Joshua? To the city of Jericho. The walls come down and they're annihilated. It's not that great exciting of a story, but the walls come down. If anybody remembers when I was a kid, I grew up in the church and we sang a little song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls come tumbling down. And that's part of the story. I'm a, I'm, I'm, I feel so passionate about people understanding the bigger story than just a little snippet of scripture. That this story, Joshua, if you remember, they, the people have come out of Egypt. Moses led them. And they're to go into the promised land and they go and see it. And what do they do? Does John Hugh ask y'all questions and y'all ever talk back? <laughs> Let's wake up. What do they do? Does anybody know? Do they say, oh, we'll go take this land that God has promised? No, they get scared. God said, I will be with you. I am faithful. But they get scared. They say, no, nah, it's kind of scary. So they have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, discovering God's faithfulness. And then they come back and they said, now it's time to go in. They come to the Jordan River. Right on the other side is Jericho. Moses is dead. But God is not. He says, I will be with you. Because they put a lot in Moses. I mean, that was their leader. That was their guy. He says to Joshua, I'll be with you. The theme of the book is, don't be afraid. I'll be with you. God will be with you. Be strong and courageous. The book of Joshua. He comes to crossing the Jordan. Does anybody remember any time earlier when they come out and you know, Charlton Heston raises his hands at the Ten Commandments and that where they crossed a body of water? The Red Sea thing, yeah, coming out. And the, the water's part and God actually tells them, you just stand there and watch me work. But here he parts the Jordan, but not the same way. You know, God never does the same thing twice. Here they've been wandering in the wilderness, discerning and discovering his faithfulness. And here he says, you're going to have to get your feet wet. You don't get to just watch. Tells the priest, they're going to have to walk out into the middle of the water, the middle of the river, and he's going to stop it, carrying the ark. And that's all they're told. They don't know how. And they also just see that it's flood stages. But God doesn't tell them the rest of the picture. And they step out and God stops the flow of the water. But he happens to do it 18 miles upriver at a city called Adam. Now what, what would happen? What would happen if it was there? Would the water just immediately be done? It would, it would slowly go down. But they had to keep walking. So it's this amazing test of faith after discovering God's faithfulness. And they cross over and, and realize God is with them. And then he says, now I want you to go and you're going to take out this city of Jericho. It's not a very, it's one of the stories when you read it out of context, just that passage, 
It's kind of scary. But if you read it in the context of all of God's word, God has told, in Genesis, God told Abram, I'm not ready to judge them yet. That's why your descendants are going to go be slaves. And he gives them 500 years of grace. And they were a horrible people. Archaeologists have discovered the things they did and sacrificing their children to pagan God. I mean, it's terrible. But God says, I'm not ready yet. When the spies went in, there's Rahab, who was the harlot, who gets protected. God's grace goes first. And there are people who are spared. But there is also the part of the message that, you know, I really wish we could just rip right out of the Bible. When you have rejected long enough, and when that is, is is God's stuff, there are consequences. And it's now time to go in. But to let them know that this is God, God tells them, don't you dare. In Deuteronomy, you can read it multiple times. Don't you dare get arrogant and think you are something special. I chose the nation of Israel out of your weakness. And it's not because they're weak. Or some, it is because of their sin. It's not about you being something important and better. And don't you try to obliterate any other people. I will tell you. To let them know it is God who's made the decision is when he does the weird thing. of says you've got to march around it once a day for six days and blow the trumpets and all that stuff. And then the seventh day, march around it seven times and then shout and blow the trumpet and the walls fall down. To let them know, it's not your stuff. This is God's stuff. God's leading you. Then he tells them to wipe them out and take nothing. And then after it's over, Joshua... And there's debate among scholars. I happen to believe the text. um, And I won't go through preaching the entire book of Joshua to explain why. But I think Joshua... Because God doesn't tell him to say this. And God tells him everywhere else... Then he pronounces a curse on what's left of the city. And he says, may anybody who rebuilds this city lose their firstborn son doing so. And as they rebuild the walls, he kind of adds to that their youngest son. So he says this curse just to say, we are so committed to just making this city desolate, never rebuilding it back. God said, don't take anything. It is a first fruits to him where I'm going to touch it. And just, it's cursed if you try to rebuild it. And they move on. There's other interruptions and stuff, and Joshua will stop there. Now, how would you like to live maybe close to Jericho, and that was where you knew it was your city, and where you destroyed and it's just left desolate with this curse it's mentioned a few more times it's mentioned under the reign of David some of his guys go and do something and they get made fun of and then they get just made to be completely embarrassed and look like fools and they cut their beards off half of them and he says, and y'all are going to have to go grow your beards back out because you're just, you're just wearing this embarrassment. But let, why don't y'all go hang out at the embarrassing place for bad stuff, which is Jericho. That's where they're supposed to hang out. So it's this place of negative kind of stuff. It's not talked about highly. Then 300 years later from the original destruction of it, 
is when it's talked about by David. Then another hundred years later, 400 years later, guess what happens? Under the reign of King Ahab, the worst king. You can read about this in, in 1 Kings. And it says right there at the beginning of his reign, he was just, and it's kind of a slap in the face to God. One of his guys rebuilds the city. What do you think happens? What do y'all think happens? I, I didn't hear a thing. He loses his son. As he's rebuilding it, his son dies. Whether, whether it was Joshua who pronounced it, God had already said, don't you curse people. Don't you curse those who curse you. Don't you make vows to me. You'll have to honor them. It'll be sin. He's already said, don't do it. So I don't know if it was Joshua suggests God, however, but he honors it. And in the process of building the city, his son dies. And his youngest son, his oldest and youngest. Then the text continues. And you get Elisha. Elijah has been the prophet and he goes up to be with God. And then Elisha sees him and he gets the, the mantle or his cloak. Or, and, and it's time for him to go be the prophet. And he hits the water of Jericho at that same spot. He goes dry, he walks across. And what happens is where we pick up and what we read. The, the men from the city come and they, they tell him, Elisha, you know, it looks real nice. So it looks like a nice place. It's been rebuilt and things look real good on the outside maybe. But there's something wrong with the water. And it is very unfruitful or barren. We don't know, but it, something's up. And so Elisha, that's when he says, why don't you go get me a new bowl or a new jar, representing something new and untouched and ready. And then he says, now put some salt in it. I mean, how silly. And then he goes to the water and he puts, puts the salt in the water and pronounces this fact that it's now clean. Now, is it some kind of magical hocus-pocus that he does? I don't think so. Because, you see, the new bowl represents something new and new life and something that is, can be built and it's got a new use and hadn't been touched yet. And the salt is significant. In every, almost every one of the, the sacrifices that they were supposed to make, you offered it with salt. It purifies, it's... It's holy, all that stuff, but it's a significant offering with a sacrifice. So he takes the salt and he purifies the water, making the statement, it is, it, is, it is clean, it is fruitful, it's good water. And what I think is happening here, the men come running out, all right, you're the prophet. The city looks nice, but it's still just bad. Could you imagine living in a city that that was your story? I mean, that was what you, that's what you know. I mean, they're all... They're, they would have known the story at the time. Our claim to fame as a city is we were obliterated. Because when we were a pagan, we were so horrible. So we are completely wiped off. And then under the worst king possible, we rebuilt... Under the loss of a son. 
Do you think that would have a little bit of a negative impact on the city? Yes? No? Yeah. And I think they come to Elisha saying, it's just, it's, it's just a, still a bad place. We're still suffering the consequences of this curse. And I don't think Elisha does any kind of magical hocus pocus. He just knows the truth. It's in every book of the Bible. It is all the way from the beginning to the end. And the truth is, when the, when the consequences have happened, when the price has been paid, it's been paid. The guy rebuilt the city, lost his son. But the price was paid. In every one of the books of the Bible, you see, the, the good news of the gospel is that you can repent. And new life can happen. You can do over, you can start over, you can... They were living under this curse. This negative thing that had been proclaimed about their city and that they had just felt oppressed over and a problem and it's still bad. And Elisha said, no, it's not. It's done. You can be like a new bowl and new life and start over because the price has been paid. Sounds a little like the gospel to me. The God laid out. God laid out in Genesis with, with Abraham, chapter 15. It's beautiful. He cuts covenant with him and he makes a covenant promise. I will be faithful to everything I've said. And if somebody in this contract isn't faithful, God says he'll die. He never makes Abraham say he'll die. I can't go into the details. We don't have time. But it's laid out there. When the price is paid, it's over. And actually, there are, there are people I've known that have gone to where the site of Jericho is today and there's still a spring. It's said until this day, but actually it's to this day still, of amazing water that is used to produce amazing things. I don't know, I haven't been, but I've heard. But it's still there. It's called the well or spring of Elisha. Because God is faithful. What does that mean for us today? All right, so we're done with the, with the biblical historical stuff. If you've gone to sleep, wake up. What does that mean for us today? Anybody in here ever kind of live under the problems or a lie or a statement or a, a curse about you? Or about someone else or known anybody? We kind of had to suffer the consequences of, of a lie or a statement. I was a girl and I was, I guess it was about sixth grade, fifth, sixth grade, I think. Sixth or seventh grade. It was a terrible nickname with a terrible story that went with it. And I was sitting there in class while the guy in front of me made it up. I mean, he laughed about it and talked to me and, I was, and, and, and called her that name. That name followed her to, to, to college. 
That lie of a story followed her to college and it followed her on in life. Very derogatory name and a very bad story. She lived under the curse of a lie. There's other kinds of lies and curses that we may live under. Problems and struggles. Sometimes our own stories, our own stuff. I know for me, and as Johnny said, just tell your story some. And my story, I, I am significantly ADD and dyslexic. And uh, so school was not my thing. I didn't get any help with the learning disabilities. I mean, a lot of people tried, but real help till the summer after my 11th grade year. My doctor had said, you know, college may not be for you. I'm still not sure whether he said that because he knew I was just, you don't tell me what I can't do, or really wasn't. But I didn't, I didn't go to college right out of high school, didn't do so well. Did okay, did good my senior year because I got some help. But uh, ended up, I was playing guitar in bar, a bar van and washing cards at the auto auction. Mississippi Auto Auction in Hattiesburg. And moved up to working in the back gate some. Because I thought, yeah, this is life for me. As good as it gets. But I had a boss who was a Christian. His name was Travis. And he called me in his office. This was the year, about midway through the year, I had I'd already finished high school. And he said, Chuck, you're a good employee. You're really good at what you're very, you've been here, you've learned, you've moved up to the, being able to do the computer stuff on the back gate, and there's a job that's opened up down at Recon, full-time job, and I want you to know you would be the first one I'd recommend, because I know you're out of school and you can take on a full-time thing now, and, uh, but I'm not recommending you. I want you to know, but I'm not putting your name in the hat. He said, because you need to get out of this place. You will go down there and make full-time money, and you will get content, and you will stay here, and there's more you can do with your life. You need to go to school. And he kind of broke that part of the curse. And I ended up going to school. And ended up going to Jones Junior College. And had to uh, take intermediate classes because my background was so bad. But I ended up lettering in academics at Jones. Ended up highest honors at USM. A full paid academic scholarship for my master's. And a full paid scholarship for my doctorate. My mother didn't think I would ever go to college. Then she didn't think I would ever stop once I went. But I'm not saying that's a guarantee for anybody. But I'd felt stupid my whole life. Because of first and second grade. My friends had actually qualified for the gifted program. They all thought it was an art class. I didn't find out that until high school. Because they knew I was an idiot. We live under all kinds of curses and stuff. Things may be claimed about you or things you feel or stuff you've experienced or things you have done. The gospel, the good news is the price has been paid. Come on. Live in the newness. If you'll just accept it. Surrender to it. 
But you know, this, this isn't this place in 2 Kings isn't the last time you hear about Jericho. In the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, we'll just think about Luke. There's a story that Jesus tells when an expert in the Bible stands up and wants to make himself feel validated and make sure he's got his ticket to heaven and talking about how do you get eternal life and ask him a question and keep the commandments. And I have is what he says. And then he tells a story about a man who's on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's attacked by robbers and ends up in a ditch. A priest, a Levite, who were the religious people, walked by. But the hated and despised Samaritan stopped. I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it. That's for you to decide, because I'm the one standing up here. But I think Jericho, a place that had to learn when the price is paid, it's over. And the curse is broken. And the fact that this guy in a ditch and this hated Samaritan who was despised by the Jews is the guy who cares for him. That I think about curses stated, thinking about the attitude of the guy in the ditch. I wonder, does anybody care? You know, um, another aspect of my story. About six years ago, no, I guess it's more like close to eight. I was going to plant a church. It's kind of why my interest in you know church plants and y'all kind of new in the church. It turned out to be a failed church plant. Nobody wants to have a failed church plant under the belt. Um, failed. But it turned into an outreach ministry to at-risk kids that began in our house. We kind of stumbled into kids, and that's where the only really success was. And it's been running for seven years. We had to give up funding and all that kind of stuff, and we'd just been doing it volunteer. Uh, myself, my wife, and a handful of leaders. And we pick up 30 to 40 kids every week. And it has been the most painful journey, painful journey to be a... I mean, who wants to fail at a church plant? But it's a journey that I wouldn't change for anything. And I've seen God break generational curses in the lives of children. People who thought, I mean, education would never be an option. Even parents who, living in generational poverty... Really, we're afraid if their kids go away, they're not going to come back to college. And they're going to need me, and I'm going to need them. And that's, we just need relationships in poverty. And just education's not an option. It even sabotage their education. I've seen God work. But four, four kids graduate this year. The first on either side of their family to ever graduate high school. I've seen kids, and just it's evolved into me being missions pastor and being around kids and broken and, and adults and people in poverty and all kinds of stuff that just loving and caring for people. And missions really isn't a program of the church. It's not really a, a event. It is life, and it is the invitation that God gives us. And there are people all around us in this city Thinking about a heart for the city that are living under curses. Lies. That the price has been paid by Christ and it's over if they will step into the freedom. 
I know people, I know a girl that just can't think of any, anything for her future other than being a dropout teen mom. Because she was prostituted by her own mother at the age of nine. Knows nothing different. But that is a lie. The price has been paid. I've seen God break that stuff. When I think about that story of the Good Samaritan, I also think about the priest and the Levite doing their good church work. Or maybe they were heading home to go feed their family. Or there's all kinds of sermons and theories over what they were doing. But the real nugget is they felt it would cost more for them to stop than they wanted to give up, whatever it was. Whether they were going to do their religious duty, whether they might have been going to feed homeless children, and who knows what. The Samaritan realized it would cost more for the person in the ditch if he did not stop. Wasn't thinking about himself. That's the difference. But those were the religious folk. I hate to tell you, but sometimes we live under the lies of the church. Doesn't sound very good for a preacher to say, does it? Believing just going through the church... Going through the motions of church, coming and gathering in a place on Sunday morning and paying your, your dues is it. Or coming and gathering and singing some wonderful praise songs, which I absolutely love. I love and I love to worship. But we can make an idol out of praise songs if we forget the God that they point to and the invitation that he invites us to, which is to put him as Lord and surrender your life completely. And be like a child and let him teach you new every day where you are wrong. And you've got the gift of repentance because of the price he paid so that you can live in the kingdom right now. One of the lies we, we do is we, we make it all about heaven. Come get your ticket to heaven. We'll talk about that. We'll read John 14 at funerals and he's gone to prepare a place for you. Well, I don't like it when we read scripture out of context. John 14 happens to be the continuation of a conversation that started in John 13. And in the original text, there are no chapter divisions. It was written to read it from beginning to end, the entire Gospel of John in one sitting. And if you read it in its context, he's talking to the disciples. He's just washed their feet and he said, why don't you love not like you want to, or love like yourself. Love like I've just loved. It may cost you everything. They begin to ask some questions. Because he says, I'm going to go. And he says, where are you going? We don't want you to go. And he begins to answer and say, well, I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, you're not. I'll die. I'll give my life for you. And Jesus says, no, you won't. You're going to deny me before the rooster crows. Three times. You're going to deny me. He says, no, I'm not. But then the next thing out of Jesus' mouth is, but he's still talking to Peter and the disciples. Peter, he's just told them, you're not going to die tonight. You think you are, but you're going to be too afraid of a little girl to die. But don't you worry about it. You believe in God, you believe also in me, because in my Father's house are many mansions. And I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to bring you there. 
Because then the next thing he says is, because I want you to love like I love. And there will be a day that you will die for me. When you realize this, that the promise of heaven is so real and wonderful, but it's so you don't have to be afraid to live in the kingdom today. There's all kinds of lies that we live in. So this morning, as you think about it, there's one more place that Jericho has talked about as Jesus is going in, heading for Jerusalem to die. He enters Jericho and he heals a blind man. And then there's a little, little tax collector guy. Anybody know his name? A little short fella. Climbs up a tree. Zacchaeus happens to be in Jericho. He's a liar and a cheat, and he cheats people because the government doesn't care. It's not illegal what he's doing, but he's building his fortune. He wants to see Jesus. Jesus said, I'm going to come eat with you in your house, which was a horror because he was a sinner, a tax collector. But then Zacchaeus says, whatever I have stolen, I will give back more than that. I won't cheat and I will give to other people. And Jesus says, and salvation has come to this house. Because you see, he lived under the cultural lie that so many, so many people in the United States do. That life is about gathering wealth and resources. And we do it in ways that are not illegal. Nothing, I'm not doing anything wrong. It's not illegal, but we may exploit people, exploit the poor, cheat people, do stuff. And that is a lie. Life, the invitation that God gives us is that life is about God first. And it's about others second, more than yourself. And surrendering and giving into that. And that's the kingdom. When we make it about something else, that's a lie. Surrendering to him... And there is nothing, I'm going to close with this. The day we think there is something that God can't redeem, no matter how horrible it may have been, sin that somebody's committed, something's claimed over someone's life, someone in the ditch that you think, no, it doesn't matter how horrible it is, that is a lie. He's already paid the price. It's already paid for. Jesus has just invited us to be the salt. To show the world. It's over. And live in the freedom. I wouldn't plan on closing with this. And I've probably gone over time. But I, I can't help but say it. Because y'all don't ever have to have me back. And he talked too much. So that's fine. My wife and I were. Married for nine years. Wasn't planning on saying it, but I can't help it. We were married for nine years before we had my little girl. Infertility issues and had to take an injection from Dr. Isaacs at the infertility clinic for her to ovulate to have the baby. Then my little boy came right after, but he had significant medical problems and he's a, he's a miracle. 
church did a prayer vigil for him, and it's amazing. He's alive, and he's good and great, gone. They still have his CT scans at, at, at University of Alabama because they don't know what to say about it. And then we were five years, secondary infertility. A lot of things tried, and we finally just came to the end. And registered with Mississippi Families for Kids to adopt sibling group, possibly. They'd been removed from the home. and Ended up a partnership with Mississippi Families for Kids, Christ United Methodist. We do a youth leadership camp. We'd love for you to come help with it. And I love Mississippi Families for Kids. We finally gave up. And realized, you know, then my little boy, his birthday is January 29th. The week of his birthday, started saying, Mommy's going to have a baby in her belly, my birthday. Finally, that Friday, Sunday was his, his uh, that Sunday was going to be his party, his birthday. Friday, she asked, why do you keep saying that? And he said, because God's told me. So we had the party on Sunday, Monday morning, she took two pregnancy tests and called me. We told the kids after we got it verified from the doctor, and I'd come home for lunch, and they started high-fiving each other. And found out my kids had gotten together with one of my little girl's baby dolls, and they were praying for a baby, a six-year-old little girl and five-year-old little boy. Because we were done, it was over. We, God said, no, it's not. It was the faith of my children thought it could still be redeemed more than me but I tell you that story to say but there are no guarantees I know none of my children may live to the end of this week and it's not God's job to do what I want and there is no that's a theological lie to say if we pray hard enough for what we want God's got to do it but don't you ever think there isn't anything any city any person, any situation that he cannot redeem. And the invitation is that he is God and you are not. And be faithful in it. Have the faith of a child to say, when I'm wrong, I want, to, I want forgiveness. And I want to learn not to do it again. And I want to live in your kingdom. Whatever it is, and to do what he says, and that's the gift. Because he died for that. So whatever lies you're struggling with, things about yourself, things from your past, lies of our culture thinking life is about stuff and accumulating it. Your heart for the city and the transformation begins in you experiencing the freedom. And freedom in Christ in Scripture always looks like bondage to the outside world because it means surrendering yourself to his lordship, even when it doesn't make sense. But that's the real freedom of the kingdom. And that is where cities and life and things get redeemed in ways you cannot imagine. Let's pray. Here God, we praise you and thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, I thank you for the truth that when the price is paid, it is paid. There's so much truth in your word that we will live, we will live under curses and lies. Some we create ourselves. 
But you are the, the way, the truth, and the life. Whatever it is in our own life, in our own situation, in our own, that we think you can't redeem this morning, help us to claim that is a lie. You have died to bring restoration. It doesn't mean we get what we want, but it means you can bring restoration and life in the midst of our brokenness. And wherever we see other people or other situations or things in this city that we think, that is just too broken. It can't be restored. Help us to, to acknowledge that is a lie. Help us to have the faith of children. You are a God who can redeem anything and who can do anything. And we want to learn from you how to live in your kingdom, whatever it looks like, however weird it is and whatever it may cost us. Because you died for that. And we can surrender our sin and our, our lives and our stuff to you. So you can bring new life into us and the waters and the rivers of life flow into us and out of us and that we can be the salt that's used to show the rest of the world your truth and your life. Be with us as we continue in worship and leave this place and life is worship. In Jesus' name we pray.